Hello, I'm Chris Biddle, your host for this episode of AgriTurf Agenda, which celebrates the 50th anniversary of the Douglas Bomford Trust. On the 7th of September 2022, almost 80 guests gathered at Springhill Barn near Pershore in Worcestershire to mark half a century of the Trust set up in the memory of Douglas Bomford the driving force behind the invention of many well-known agricultural products still in common use today. Amongst the guests was John Fox, a former managing director and chairman of the family company Bomford and Envershed, of whom you will hear more later. The Trust's aim is to support the future education, training and research in the design, production and application of agricultural machinery and equipment. Springhill Barn was a highly appropriate venue for the celebration, for it is the home and farm of Jonathan Bomford and his family, a direct descendant. And it was Jonathan who opened the formal proceedings. Thank you. I'd like to uh, welcome you all to Springhill Barn and to thank you for supporting the Trust in its 50th, uh, celebrating the 50th year. As you know, I'm Jonathan Bomford and have been the family representative on the Trust for 22 years. My working life was not in the field of agriculture, but in accountancy, mainly in the Middle East, where I worked with Ernst & Young. I'm going to cover the origins and evolution of the Trust. The Trust, in part, owes maybe 400 years of the Bonford farming heritage, which embraced innovations, inventions, to improve productivity and farming. Douglas was born into a well-established farming family. <clears throat> He benefited from engineering practices of his generation and recent ancestors. He was born in 1894, educated at Mill Hill School and Wycliffe Cottage. He then went on to study medicine in Edinburgh University, following his brother Leslie. He was studying there when World War I broke out. He joined the Worcester Regiment as a commissioned officer. There are various reports of Douglas's service at the front, and it is said that Douglas served with great gallantry. Unfortunately, Douglas suffered a severe bullet wound to his hip in 1917 and was invalided home in 1918. Because of his injuries, Douglas was forced to give up medicine and return to the family business in Worcester. Medicine's loss was agricultural's gain. On his return from war, Douglas joined R&B Bonford and the company later became known as Bonford Brothers and eventually was bought by Bonford and Evershed Limited. Douglas became a director of Bonford and Evershed in 1920. Douglas's contribution to the field of agriculture and in particular engineering were manifold and well documented. He was an unassuming man of great charm yet combined with iron integrity and determination. He had extraordinary vision and the ability to analyse problems uh, and, and find solutions. In 1927, when the financial situation of farmers was critical and corn growing was unprofitable, he wrote and published a booklet entitled Corn in England. It explains in clear and simple terms the cause of the unprecedented situation which existed at that time, that of rising costs and diminishing returns. His conclusion was to increase output and improved productivity. 
by the means of correct and efficient application of mechanisation. In summary, Douglas advocated moving from horses and steam ploughs to tractors and more versatile implements, together with the more efficient use of labour which would then be available. We might reflect that nearly 100 years later, we have a similar situation whereby rising costs due to geopolitical situations and inflation may be addressed by engineering and technological inventiveness. Once again, mechanisation was key to the solution. It was particularly important when manpower was required elsewhere in the war effort. His inventions and achievements are too many to list, but a few worth noting. The um, Bonford Midget Tractor, featuring fully mounted implements controlled from the, the driver's seat. Around 20 of these tractors were built during the late 1930s. He also invented or developed um, hedge and verge cutters, ditching equipment, irrigation systems, harvest threshers, rolled rollers and half tra tractors, and earth moving equipment. And also the reversible plough mechanism. He, he certainly tinkered with that in, in a big way. He works extensively on ploughs and believed that good farming started with good ploughing. I'm sure the current generation of farmers would have an interesting discussion with him on this subject. Times have changed. Douglas held many important appointments over a long period, but his key membership was that of the Institution of Agricultural Engineers, of which he became president and was finally awarded an honorary fellowship. Moving on to the formation of the trust itself, Douglas married cousin Elizabeth, everybody knew her as, as Betty. Betty grew up here at Spring Hill, just across the, the yard here. Douglas died in 1969 and was survived by Betty. They had no children, so the question arose as to what should happen to their estates, and in particular, the Bonford Evershed shares now owned by Betty. John Fox was then managing director of Bonford Evershed, and he came up with the solution that ticked many boxes. After Douglas's death, John approached Betty with the proposal that a trust be formed in the name of Douglas Bonford with the objective of advancement of education, training and research in the science and practice of agricultural engineering and mechanisation. After all, during his life, Douglas was keen on developing the development of young talent. He took great pleasure in encouraging young agricultural engineers. Not only did he enjoy helping young people, but he saw them as the future of the industry. Betty agreed that this was an excellent proposal and that the trust was therefore formed in 1972 with capital from Douglas's estate and in particular the Bonfordshire chairs. It is fair to record that without John's forethought and in intervention, the trust would not have been formed. Since then, the trust has grown and evolved to become an important contributor to the advancement of agricultural engineering, both financially and professionally. It has benefited from significant donations and commercial arrangements. And by prudent management of the trust, together with the benefit of subsequent donations, the trust capital is now valued at some £6 million. Consequently, trustees are now in a position to make awards of an aggregate of £150,000 a year. In 2007, the trust was incorporated as a company limited by guarantee.
So in conclusion, on behalf of the Bonford family, we wish to express our thanks to, to John Fox particularly and trustees past and present who have given freely of their time and have been instrumental in forming and developing such an important and worthwhile trust. Without them, we wouldn't be where we are today. And finally, I'd like to thank Alan Plom and our current secretary, Elizabeth Stevens, our administrators, for their work on trust matters and for organising this celebration. Thank you very much. Following Jonathan Bonford was Nick August, a farmer and chair of the trustees, with some words about the ongoing role of the trust, and he opened with something of a disclaimer. Not everyone here will know me, uh, not that I've come, because I've not come from an academic background. Uh, I'm Nick August, I'm chairman of the trust at present. It's been a very short seven years that I've been involved with, as a trustee of the DBT, so excuse me if I'm a little bit vague on past achievements. It was, to say the least, a surprise to get a call from the board to join their presence. A board of prominent academics and managers within the agricultural engineering industry. You are all leaders in research, design and manufacture of agricultural machines, technologies and systems. There is a spectrum then you might consider me to be at the other end, testing your systems to destruction. <laughs> is it any wonder that there is significant interest from the likes of Amazon, Google and Microsoft in data capture and robotics, advances that strive to take the farmer out of the equation? So really, my qualification is experience, and as a determined user an exponent of agricultural systems and technology, and a dabbler in the field of IoT, who, if not staring redundancy in the face, is certainly looking at a different role within land management and food production because of the future technologies. I wouldn't say I'm a turkey voting for Christmas, but it might be wise for me to change my skill set. In my time as trustee... Even as chairman since 2018, the agricultural engineering landscape has changed significantly. The Douglas Bonford Trust uh, is unique in being the only UK charity focused on engineering and technology for agriculture. DBT's original objective, reflecting Douglas Bonford's focus on agricultural engineering, uh, to encompass the development and wider applications of engineering, and its vital contribution to sustainable food production and protection of the environment. More recently, the emphasis has been on technology, and the wider application of engineering is proving a vital contribution to sustainable food production and the protection of our environment. Most of us have gone from being in touch with technology to now being embraced by technology. And over the decades, this is reflected in the style of project that's been proposed for funding to the Trust. It has expanded our sphere of influence. No longer is it about mechanisation. On the contrary, if you're looking at size and weight, 
probably more about demechanisation, as we understand more about preserving and recovering our soils and landscape. Inquiries come from an increasing number of academic establishments. As governments' incentives steer food production and land managers in response to public pressure on landscape, cheap, high-quality food, our carbon footprint, not to forget food production, housing and infrastructure, these all have an influence on the style of project that the Trust supports. I'm conscious that we have to keep pace with those calls. Over the past 50 years, the Trust has supported numerous postgraduate studies and students, some masters, but the majority at PhD doctorate level. Many of those have leading roles as lecturers, researchers, directors, consultants, and involved in the design, production, marketing, and machines, agriculture and food production, conservation and environment, all contributing to the intellectual and innovative capacity of agricultural engineering in the UK and worldwide. A national asset which needs nurturing and continued support. A significant proportion of the Trust's annual income is allocated to research. As many as 10 PhDs are running concurrently. There is a high regard for co-sponsorship and this has several benefits. It reduces and spreads the risk to the Trust. Dozens of students compete each year to discretionary scholarships. Only a few are successful in gaining financial reward. But all gain from the experience of confronting the panel of trustees and all credit to those that endure the challenging experience. Each year we support two Arkwright scholars through their A-levels. This year it's four students are inclined to ag engineering. What 16-year-old knows where their career path is going to lead? But we can encourage them into the curious world of ag engineering. There are annual prizes for top students at Cranfield, Harper Adams and the Royal Agricultural Universities. What each of these students has in common is that they have a calibre above those of their classmates. And great importance is placed on personal development to improve and maintain professional competence and skills. They're endorsed by the Trust and the Trust opens doors. And with your support, we will continue to open doors for our alumni. Over 150 budding ag engineering students have their membership to the Institute of Agriculture and Engineers paid annually. This helps to continue their professional development with a wide range of learning and network opportunities that the Institute provides. Hundreds of students have been supported with travel awards, not just boozy trips to Agritechnica, <laughs> but support for postgrads to present at international conferences or groups of mechanisation students from the Argyle Islands to visit ag dealerships on the Scottish mainland. Many of these have been jeopardised because of the pandemic as travel has been curtailed. More unique funding opportunities 
have been the mechanisation building at Harper Adams, opened in 2014 by my neighbour, Lord Morley. The Trust has also funded the Douglas Bonford Trust Chair in Applied Farm Mechanisation and Management at the Royal Agricultural University. Finally, Alan Plum, our Secretary, has found time to do a deep dive into the archive box and found an interesting programme of the third Douglas Bonford Memorial Lecture. The third one was held at Silso in association with IAGRI. Another sponsored lecture was at the Mansion House, in which HRH Prince Philip was attendant. I expect also our trustee John Fox was there. Yes, with a smile. Thank you. Thank As everyone will acknowledge, the challenges facing farming and food production are very different to those facing the Trust 50 years ago. The engineers of the future will be engaged in a world of new technology. So trustee Professor Paul Miller explained how this would impact on the role of the Douglas Bomford Trust over the coming years. And, and thanks particularly to both Jonathan and to Nick for setting the scene. But what I now have to talk about is, which is how, how do we do it, how have we done it, how are we thinking about doing it, and how we're planning to do it slightly differently in the future. The biggest challenge as a trust that we face is making the best use of our money, identifying the right people and the right projects. And one of the real key messages that I'd like to get across to all of you is that I think our business goes into two foci, people and projects. And if I had to choose between them, and this man knows it, I will put people first every time. Because if we look at research, research is now a complex environment. Agricultural engineering is essentially using an amalgam of things that are done elsewhere. What we're really trying to do, as far as the trust is concerned, is to give people that can then make the contribution to those that have already done so sitting in this room. We're trying to foster the, uh, the up-and-coming uh, people that are going to fill and drive our industry in the future. That doesn't mean to say that the projects that we do as PhDs are not important technically. But I think if you talk to most, I was going to say of us, or perhaps of them, who have got a PhD, they would say, the biggest thing I learned is how to do it properly. And if I did it, I'd do it differently next time. In other words, it's the training as well as the contribution to the science. And that training also involves technical visits, as we've heard from what Nick has said, and the way in which we interact with it. With the business. That interaction is important, and I'll come to that in just a minute. So our biggest role as trustees and as a board is to select the right projects and to see how we can do that in a way that is going to deliver something for the industry. But we're a charity, so we're not a business, and yes, our deliverables are important, but our deliverables are slightly different to those of an industrial 
company. And what we're therefore trying to do, we can take a bit more risk than you could take if you were a commercial company. But we do need to make sure that we get value for the money that we're spending. And we do that by using trustees as mentors within projects to both help the student develop the student's capabilities, but also to make sure that we do get something out of it. That there is a, a bank of both knowledge that we can point to, and that's important from the students as well, that they can show some achievements. I'm very conscious that when John set up the trust back in 1972, agricultural engineering was very different then from what it is now. And so when we get to looking at a strategy, I think we have to say the trust now has a bigger opportunity even than it had back in 1972. Up until now, we have been mainly responsive. And I know there are those who have been involved with the trust who will say, Paul Miller, we told you ages ago that we should be a bit more initiative and we should be trying to do a bit more steering. And Paul Miller would say, yes, but we haven't got the resources to do that. The board now has said, we're going to take that initiative. We're going to allocate a proportion of our resources such that we try and steer the way some of our projects go. Now, the difference won't be dramatic, because already, as you've heard from what Nick and from what uh, uh, you will see around you, the trust interacts already closely with those concerned with the industry. But we're going to have to do that more because we want to set a proportion of the agenda where we spend a certain amount of our uh, money. And in order to define a strategy, we've been working very closely with colleagues at Cranfield University, and I'm very grateful to both Elizabeth and Monica who are here. The first thing that Cranfield said is, well, this is all very well setting a strategy, but you need to know what the future is going to look like. So they developed some scenarios that said, how is agriculture and agriculture and engineering going to fit into the future? And uh, they produced some fine reports and said, okay, now look at where you think uh, the trust can contribute. What we have done is, in order to develop a strategy, the team at Cranfield have interacted. They started off by talking to a wide range of people to look at what the scenarios were going to be like. They've now moved on to say, right, what's your strategy going to be? And we're not there yet. But they've started to talk to individual trustees and to try and build a picture for which areas do we put more emphasis in? That's the easy bit. Which bits do we put less emphasis in? That's always a difficult bit. It's always difficult to say where do we really want to think that we can make a difference. <clears throat> so they've refined our mission statement. They've given us a vision for the future. But the important thing is that we have a direction, we have an objective, and we have the four pillars that are going to enable us to deliver that. But the key pillar is people and education and collaboration. Yes, if we can develop the technology as we go along that route, then that's going to be a big bonus. We have goals, objectives, activities 
and we will try and measure what is happening. We will look to see whether we're making a difference or not. And where we are making a difference, we'll want to build on successes. And where things are not working quite right for us, we'll want to scale back our activities. We'll want to look at professional development. We want to make sure that we've got the people that can take our industry forward. We can contribute to that with our training role, our engagement, and we need to make sure we've got the quality right. And then we can start to make some sort of impact. We've already made a big impact. We've only got to look around this room. Um, and we've got an opportunity, the Trust believes, the Board believes, to increase that and enhance where we go. So, in terms of the discussion with Cranfield, Cranfield have been talking to individual trustees so far, and they've said, right, what are the key words? What are the things that keep coming out? And you will not be surprised that the word technology keeps coming up. And Elizabeth then turns to me and says, but what does technology mean? What is technology to some of us, which is tractors, uh, technology to others is very different. Might be little things with legs on that they solder into various things. You'll not be surprised. You'll not be surprised that energy is going to come in there somewhere. This has all been done in the last couple of months, and therefore, whether it's hydrogen or not, there's going to be an energy component in there. But it's not all about tractors, and it's not all about agriculture. But there are other issues that we're particularly interested in. We're interested in the horticultural side, how we can produce food outside of the field. Um, technology still comes important. Energy uh, in the form of either wind, solar, or other forms of energy are going to be important. So all these things do is to say, this is the way in which the trust is working at the moment. We have yet to finalise our strategy. The board, whether they like it or not, have got an important meeting in November when they're really going to have to roll up their sleeves because what we're proposing now means that the trustees have got to take an active role. They've got to start to steer the way in which we spend some of our money. And we're going to do that by in maintaining an emphasis on projects and an emphasis on people less emphasis on facilities and equipment. We're going to define a strategy and we will allocate 50% of our funding to make sure that it supports that strategy. That doesn't mean to say all projects will be divided one or the other. We still want to have ideas from all sources, but we want to start putting some priorities based on a strategy that we will uh, develop. And the interest is to make sure that we identify key technologies, key areas that we're going to support. We'll continue to support technical events. We'll continue to support development, professional qualifications, working with IAGRI, as well as the organisations that are going to feed into our collecting of information in order to identify those uh, key strategies areas. Now, to put some flesh on Paul Miller's encouraging words, uh, he was followed by three speakers who provided personal reflections on the theme of what the Trust did for us. 
Now, there is only room for brief snippets from their presentations. So first up was Dr. Nick Tillett, a director of Tillett & Haig Technology Limited. Okay, thanks for the invitation. Um, I first heard about Douglas Bond for Trust way back in 1992, uh, when a few of us at Silso Research Institute, if you remember that outfit, um, were speculating about the feasibility of this using this rather newfangled technology of computer vision uh, in the outdoor field environment. Because up to then, the vast majority of machine visions of applications um, had been in related to man-made objects and working indoors and under controlled lighting, which is... The idea was to identify field crop rows, and perhaps even, if we're being ambitious, individual plants, to perform some sort of highly targeted treatment at the individual plant scale. And the problem was that it was too wild an idea, really, for either math uh, or the industry to fund. Um, and the good news was that our then director, Brian Legg, was actually quite supportive of the idea, and some of the Institute's core funding was allocated our way in addition to some AFRC money. Remember what AFRC was? <laughs> um, and he had access to some. So, but the bad news was that, that those funds were insufficient uh, for our ambitious plans, and that included a team uh, consisting of myself and, and a chap called John Marchant, part-time, and two new full-time recruits and that's where the Douglas Bomford Trust came in because they come up with a very generous offer to fund one of those new recruits as a fellowship for three years um, and the post was uh, advertised uh, and a young chap fresh from his PhD at Oxford called Tony Haig applied uh, and that project was a great success uh, and started a ball rolling uh, that has continued to gain momentum over the subsequent 30 years. And it's actually having a much bigger impact, I think, than any of us would have envisaged all those years ago. From about 2015, um, we stopped seeking commercial funding uh, and spent more time on developing our own products. And that culminated in a big decision in 2015 to make our own complete control system package that we could sell to a wide range of implement manufacturers. That, that's really been a, a game-changing decision for us. Um, presently, we have 10 staff uh, and a small army of subcontractors delivering approximately 900 systems per year. 100 of those are either multi-sectional or in-world so they're quite complex machines. And to balance the ageing old farts that founded the company, we've now taken on some young, some young staff, and three of which we sponsored to do HMDs at Bedford College, and we've also taken students from Imperial College and Cranfield University on placements. And in that respect, uh, I'd like to think we're following the Douglas uh, The bulk of our 30-plus customers are European, uh, but our products do find ourselves uh, into all continents uh, by their, their sales. So, include, um, we're, we're very proud of, uh, of what we've uh, done since the trustees took that decision uh, to back us 30 years ago. And, and we're very grateful for the support we got then and from the other occasions that, that they've helped out. And we wish the Trust uh, all the best in supporting those that follow us. Thank you very much. Dr Tillett was followed by Professor Jane Rickson from Cranfield University, a former president of the Institution of Agricultural Engineers.
All right, the first thing I'd like to say is the variety of projects, and indeed people. Paul was talking about the importance of people. But I know from my experience, um, first of all at National College of Agricultural Engineering, which I joined in 1983, um, when it was the NCAE, uh, and then latterly at Silso College, and then latterly at Cranfield University. When I grow up, I will get a proper job and a proper employment. But anyway, I've been, I've been involved with NCA, Silso, and Cranfield since 1983. But over that time, the variety of projects that DBT have supported has been truly amazing. But, you know, the importance of we hear a lot about regenerative agriculture, we hear about soil as the farmer, the grower's most important asset. I'm delighted to say the Trust has supported so many soils projects, particularly looking at things like conservation tillage, reducing the intensity of tillage, trying to save the soil health of our soils. I should mention also that those projects give us very strong contacts with industry. How many times are academia, academia criticised for not being in the real world, not linking with industry? The trust allows us to do that because the strongest projects are the ones that link academia with industry partners. And I'm delighted to say that through the trust, we work with industry much more closely than we would if we were reliant on research council funding. So BBSE funding, government funding, and so on. So that gives us a real link with industry. What I love about the trust and what it allows us to do is to follow curiosity-led research, as well as the practical solutions. And finding a lot of research funding is all about impact. It's all about immediate return on investment. Innovate UK, brilliant at funding, but they want return on their investment. What about the curiosity-led science? Where's, where is that? Who is funding that? The trust is funding that. Very, very little funding now comes from that curiosity, that, that sort of wild card, that excitement of what agricultural engineering research is about. So the trust allows us to have that curiosity-led um, research. It mentors and supports students. I just want to very, very quickly say, uh, in particular, the support that the DBT give to women in engineering and agriculture. I've listed there some brilliant exemplars of women that have grown in confidence as agricultural engineers. Let's face it, the traditional view of an agricultural engineer is probably not what I am. But... Through the trust, we're seeing more young women gaining in confidence, being part of the community, feeling that that's part of their, their people, part of their community, through the research that they carry out. And finally, uh, in these short extracts from speakers talking about what the Trust did for us is Paula Mizovic of Harper Adams University. Now, since completing her PhD at Cranfield University, which was sponsored by the Trust, Paula has supervised four other PhD students as part of Harper Adams' long-term project on traction and tillage. And all of these have been part-sponsored by the Douglas Bomford Trust. So for the first time I've heard of the Douglas Bomford Trust was in uh, 2005 when I just finished my master's, uh, project, master's uh, degree at Cranfield University. And after my final uh, viva, Dick Godwin and Mike Hahn 
uh, then my supervisors and uh, who became my mentors and uh, great friends asked me if I was interested in doing a PhD in a topic related to tires, probably a topic that really interested uh, Dick Godwin. It wasn't very close to my heart at that moment, but I couldn't say no. <laughs> so um, while uh, working on my PhD project, I really developed passion to, uh, to soils and passion to, to research. And uh, the, the project was fully funded by the Douglas Bonford Trust with a very generous £660 per month of the stipend, which I really uh, kind of waited for every month, and I really appreciated it. I only appreciated it until I had to pay for my accommodation, which was at Cranfield University, which was £400. <laughs> but... Um, it really was a great experience, and I really developed uh, love and passion to, to soils and research. I would like to thank the Trust, and I would like to thank all the trustees for the continued support. Continued support. And uh, this morning, when kind of set preparing myself for the presentation, I tried reflecting what would have happened to me and my students if I wasn't uh, given that support throughout the years. And to be honest, I'm not really sure. But what I thought, I would probably be okay. But I would not have the best uh, job in the world. <laughs> and so it came to the final act of the Douglas Bomford Trust event. And in celebration of its 50th anniversary, the Trust was delighted to announce that its first patron is to be Dr David Llewellyn, CBE, the former Vice-Chancellor of Harper Adams University, who retired in July 2021. The chairman of the DPT and trustees, Nick August, presented a commemorative plaque to Dr Llewellyn, who then spoke about the challenges facing farming in the current climate. We'll start by saying that a couple of months ago I was speaking at an Institution of Agricultural Engineers event uh, at, where I made the confession uh, that I am neither an agriculturalist or an engineer, which got something of a murmur in the audience. <laughs> and I didn't really explain uh, then why um, I should be connected in any way with engineering. Uh, and I feel I ought to put that record straight. Um, my father is 85 in two weeks' time. Uh, and he has been an engineer all his life. Uh, he started with an apprenticeship at the age of 15 uh, when uh, he was sent with a train ticket from South Wales to Birmingham to uh, work at BSA. Uh, and he then later set up his own business and acted as a sole trader throughout his entire career. He's still doing it voluntarily for a railway um, uh, enthusiast club uh, where he's still welding and putting things together. So... You know, engineers don't give up at all, and that's a fantastic thing. Uh, so that's it, why it's in my DNA. Uh, engineering is really part of me, and, and it's why um, I really thought that uh, it was important to keep that uh, flag flying, really, for engineer, engineering in all that I did uh, when I was working at Harper Adams. Because we depend on engineering for almost everything uh, that is uh, in the modern world. There's a contribution or component uh, at some point. Uh, and I grew up in the middle of the space age, 
uh, and the Apollo program. Uh, and so the recent Artemis program has been of real interest to me because it's engineers that are trying to make that happen. And I know it hasn't got off the ground yet, but let's face it, it will, because engineers will stick at it, just like my father, uh, and they will actually make it work. So that ambition, that uh, approach to problem solving, and institutional collaboration that that program is demonstrating, uh, going into the latest mission of exploration beyond our planet, is fascinating to me. Um, And I know it's controversial in terms of its cost nowadays, but it will yield... Uh, further examples of advances in technology and lessons in engineering that will help us all. And that's what I've tried to focus on during my time at Harper Adams. What could be done to harness technological advances for the benefit of food production and equally importantly, the better management of the environment? And we've heard some of that today. Now, we obviously had a, a good engineering team, but I have to give credit to David Gardner, who was the former CEO of Uh, the Royal Agricultural Society for England, for prompting our thinking to go further. Uh, And to the Class Foundation, who put some money in to make that happen. And I hosted numerous VIP visits to the university, and every visit, I took them to engineering. It was usually at the end of that visit program. Uh, They'd seen the science, they'd seen what we were doing in agriculture, but what I wanted to do was to show them how it could be put into practice. And that's how we managed to get things moving. And so uh, there were times when our engineers had new things to demonstrate, sometimes things that I didn't even know about because they hadn't told me in advance. Um, But there were some amazing things going on in robotics, drone technologies, advanced software, and student projects abounding that contributed to tackling real-world problems. Um, And those problems were such that we all learned along the way how innovative agricultural engineers could be and had to be but that they also needed knowledge of agriculture to be able to put their engineering expertise into practice. Now, I'm going to reflect a little bit of history here. We've heard a lot about the trust history, but I'm just going to go back to the Foresight Panel Report on the Future of Farming, uh, uh, Food and Farming, published in 2011. Um, And that took a strategic outlook on challenges to food production to the period to 2050. It's very influential, as you probably know. And it had followed a Cabinet Office report on food price spikes, uh, published in 2008. But it soon became very clear that that report had a really big hole in it. Its distinguished authors hadn't tackled engineering at all. They talked about issues of science, economics, and international perspectives, really in the widest extent, but it fell short on that one area to put things into practice. Um, And so Dick Godwin... Uh, Mark Moore, Simon Blackmore, and I, we went off to see the chief scientist who was the author of the report, Sir John Beddington. And we pointed this out. And to his credit, he agreed, and he asked the Institution of Agricultural Engineers to produce a report which was in due course published as Agricultural Engineering, a Key Discipline for Agriculture to Deliver Global Food Security. Now, there was talk of an agritech strategy, and it took until 2013 to put that in place, a long, drawn-out campaign of lobbying to get the funding system addressed because agricultural engineering had fallen between uh, the BBSRC and the Engineering Research Council for some time. And I must confess, I thought I had a minor role in this uh, because I was on a ministerial visit to Turkey with David Willits, then the Universities and Science Minister, and our flight was delayed. We were going to Ankara. We got delayed in Istanbul. 
Uh, and so we had two hours in departures where David had his listening ears on and uh, he was able to be told a little bit by me about why we needed agri-tech and why we needed a strategy and why we needed to deal with this issue of food security. So that was an important part of our lobbying campaign to try and get this done and it took the efforts of a whole range of people to get this in place, but it happened. And that strategy wasn't just about engineering, it was about all aspects of technology. But it did set the scene for a catalyst fund, the Centers uh, for Agricultural Innovation and AgriEpi you've heard about during the presentations today. And it was the first time that the agritech sector had been explicitly recognized by the UK government, which they acknowledged in their report. The report also, though, highlighted the issues of skills for research, and it didn't pull any punches. It noted that the required skills were changing rapidly, moving towards technology and high-level scientific and managerial skills to match advances in informatics, precision farming, and engineering. And the wealth of new fundamental science, it said, has necessarily pulled training towards detailed biology, arguably at the expense of the training needed to turn basic science into improved agricultural practice. And it noted in the report certain areas of niche areas, as they were called, of agriculture uh, where there were skill shortages, and agricultural engineering was, of course, amongst those. And all this, of course, was going on whilst we were trying to sort out aspects of the developing situation with funding for the Centres for Innovation. But they gave the task to the AgriSkills Forum, AHDB and Lantra to try and improve communication about available training and advice and future skills needs for the sector. Now, obviously, that is a difficult issue to crack, and I'll come back to it in a second or two. And I, but no apologies, really, for going over history and old ground. Because I've spent my final year at university living with an historian. We shared a flat, and he would always say to me, to look ahead, we have to consider what's already happened, not least in terms of public policy. And I mentioned earlier that those reports came out at a time of crisis. Uh, and aren't we facing the same sort of crises today? History is repeating itself with different conditions, it's understood, but we're witnessing further pressures on food prices, um, and I suspect they've to be played out to their fullest extent sometime in the future. And let's not forget that climate change has also moved on over the last decade, further complicating our response to delivering food security. So those developments present challenges and opportunities. Ten years on, we still need to keep the role of agricultural engineering in view of government, a new government uh, as it happens, to ensure that they understand its vital contribution to food productivity and security, but also to keep on the message about how it can help address climate change and the protection of the environment. And we need to be smarter about how we get that message across, of course. Despite the agritech strategy, we still need to make sure that we're telling that story about the positive impact of precision uh, techniques, the way in which we're actually harnessing data uh, and indeed, the way in which we need to turn that information into economic reality for the farming industry. And here, with uh, a note of um, uh, an interest that I must declare, really, uh, there is some interesting work going on by the Global Institute of Agritech Economics at Harper Adams about uh, the way in which aspects of precision farming can actually be productive and economically viable. So all of those things have to hang together. And I have to say and acknowledge that a start, a really good start, has been made by Simon Pearson's review of automation in horticulture, uh, which has been published recently, and which found, and I quote, a sector actively seeking to adopt technologies when proven, 
but also an active and emerging cluster of UK agro-robotic expertise funded by both public and private sector investment. Where's the third sector mentioned in that? Because the Douglas Bonford Trust is a charity in the third sector, and I think it deserves greater recognition for the work it's been doing in this respect. So that report was commissioned as one of the measures to address adjustments needed in the light of the end of free movement between the UK and the European Union, running alongside the extension and expansion of the seasonal workers' pilot for 2021. And importantly, its recommendations are expected to contribute to decisions concerning future seasonal agricultural workers' schemes. But it also highlighted the risk that a career in horticulture may not be attractive still, enough to ensure that developments in automation in the sector can be delivered. And horticulture is not alone. I sat next to somebody at the Royal Welsh Show in July uh, who represents a small dairy technology company in West Wales where exactly the same problem in terms of the availability of technician-level labour with the necessary skills to provide customer support with holding back advances in the adoption of their technology. But again, that review called on industry to look again at future skills requirements at all levels to help build skills pipelines and to consider how to make the sectors more attractive to work in. That message sounds remarkably familiar to that set out in the 2013 Agritech strategy nearly a decade ago. So there's clearly more work to be done, and it's all credit to Simon and his team for pointing that out. So one of the other recommendations in that review stood out for me as one that encouraged DEFRA to consider launching a robotic crop harvester mission to fast-track innovative research and the development of systems currently in the Valley of Death hopefully resulting in a disruption to horticultural practices and global leadership in horticultural production and automation technologies. We tried and tried and tried to get uh, the team developing the Agritech strategy to take this sort of grand challenge approach. Uh, They didn't do that. But let's hope that something positive will now emerge uh, because that recommendation is critical, I think, for fostering collaboration between government, academia, industry, and the third sector, charities like the Douglas Bonford Trust. But it will need promotion and pressing with the government, I suspect, to get it delivered. Now, there are lots of examples that time is short, really, to be able to go into that, say, that really um, suggest that there are exciting prospects for engineering developments in the future. So I won't go into them here. You've heard some of them being described this afternoon. But I think one of the perennial issues that we do have to deal with is this one about labour supply. Many industries are facing labour shortages, not just in the UK. As we emerge from the pandemic and address the economic challenges ahead, I think there are two components, as the Horticulture Review has already identified, that we have to try to address. The first is that of general labour at all levels, to keep agriculture and food production operating, reduce food waste by optimising production cycles, and to assist homegrown production in particular. Not that we should be self-sufficient, but we could do better, perhaps. Well, DEF has launched an independent review into labour shortages to look at this issue, and I'm on the review panel, so I can't say anything more at this stage about that, except that we're starting work this month, and the review has already generated feedback in the public domain that there are immediate issues to address as well as those in the longer term. And the second issue, and the subject of this meeting is that of the supply of engineers, technologists, data scientists, applied biologists and technicians to help us deliver on the promise of the fourth agricultural revolution and the positive changes that could be brought about by new technologies to produce more food with fewer inputs and less impact, the people-first approach mentioned by Paul. 
And you don't need to look very far to see how charities up and down the UK are assisting with some of the issues that we're currently facing as a nation, food, pro- food poverty, for example, providing food for school children and in turn reducing food waste. And that's before we consider any international charities working in this field. But those are downstream of the food production system. And today we've been focused on what really does also help enormously, which is on the skills and knowledge required to operate and improve that system and the skills and knowledge required to assist its future development. And as for the future, well, a patron of a charity is supposed to act as an ambassador and to provide support for the organization to help advance its cause, not to interfere in its management. In fact, there's a helpful online directory of social change guide to appointing patrons, presidents, and personalities, and on page 63, I've read it, has the enigmatic chapter title, How Do You Manage Them? But as I've been asked to speak about the future, and with, I hope, the indulgence of the trustees, three thoughts have sprung to mind. The first is that we'll not be able to escape the problems associated with climate change and the energy crisis, and there are obviously pointers to that in the slides that you've seen today. And... You know, it's affecting agriculture writ large, not just in terms of the cost of fuel, but also fertilizers, etc. So there are complex relationships that we have to try to deal with, and there has to be a more rapid and joined-up approach to address those issues within agriculture. And it's here that charitable organizations, I think, can help by supporting those working on projects that can contribute to potential solutions, and, of course, the trust is doing so. The second is that we all have a responsibility to continue to raise the issue of labor supply and skill shortages within agriculture and the food system more generally. The focus of the trust is on agricultural engineering, but its impact, and we heard a lot about that today, extends well beyond that field, simply because we need engineers and technicians with knowledge of the implications of their decisions on agricultural systems to solve problems associated with the implementation of scientific advances and new technologies. Agricultural engineers with this range of skills are rare, So we need to nurture those we have and encourage those with the required skill sets, perhaps in associated fields such as data science, to apply those skills to food production. And we've seen this isn't going to be easy, but careers initiatives such as those being launched by Lantra and the Institute for Agriculture and Horticulture, both of whom are here today, may help raise the profile of the industry and also raise the professional standing of those working within it to encourage new entrants to get on board. Let's hope that that works. But the trust in collaboration with those other organizations, such as the Agri-Food Charities Partnership and the wider industry, could have an important role to play in securing the next generation of engineers and technologists, as well as supporting the research that some of them undertake. Now, the trustees are, of course, responsible for determining the way in which funding is applied. But in thinking about the future, I hope it will be possible for real collaboration along the lines of the Automation in Horticultural Crop Harvesting Moonshot project mentioned earlier, in which charitable institutions such as the Trust could participate. It happens in the field of medicine, after all. And whilst the sums there might be larger, the real aim is to pull together the resources and expertise and to develop the skills base to make challenging projects possible. I guess you could call it an agricultural Artemis, to help put the UK in a globally leading position for agricultural engineering. It will require outstanding engineers to create the solutions, resolve the problems along the way, get the thing off the ground in the first place. Uh, And whilst it might take longer to deliver than we might all hope for, by working together, I suspect we can make it possible. And this might be the right time to talk to government, a new government, again, why such collaborations will be vital for the future of future food security. 
but also for the UK's position on the agricultural world stage. So, in wrapping up, the Trust's vision should lead to long-term objectives that form the core of its strategies we heard earlier from Paul, to deliver engagement, professional development, quality, and, of course, impact. And I was heartened to hear under the new strategy um, that the board will be allocating up to 50% of its research funding to projects in priority areas, whilst continuing to support the Trust's overall mission to provide resources to help advance the application of engineering and technology to achieve sustainable agricultural, food, and biological systems for the benefit of the environment and mankind. Now, that just leads me to point out that the Trust is a relatively small charity. It has limited funds, wisely used throughout the last 50 years, but to enable the Trust to maintain, let alone increase, its vital support for agricultural engineering, the Trust would welcome further donations from organisations and individuals who share its vision. And we also heard earlier how the Trust had traditionally been seen as a passive organisation responding to requests for funding. But Paul explained how the Trust intends to be more directing and directive in getting out to encourage collaboration with other funding bodies as well as charities. So we hope that the trustees will be seen around uh, the um, agricultural engineering industry and academic institutions in the future, uh, to hear from them about their concerns and to explore opportunities for collaboration and invitations as well as funding would also be welcome. In closing, I just would like to thank the trustees for giving me the honour of appointing me as the Douglas Bomford Trust's first patron. I look forward to working with the Trust in the years ahead to support its work in this vital aspect of agriculture and food security. I hope that in attending today, we've been able to celebrate the landmark 50th anniversary of the Trust and its achievements, and that you'll have been tempted by what you've heard to continue, renew, or develop your association with the Trust and the important work that it is doing. Thank you very much indeed. And so, an extremely thoughtful and reflective address by David Llewellyn to bring to a close the 50th anniversary celebration of the Douglas Bomford Trust. It is clear that the trustees recognise the need to ensure that the Trust is fully focused on supporting and encouraging new talent for an age of new technology in agricultural and horticultural engineering. You will find a link to further information and pictures of the celebration event at Spring Hill Barn on the show notes to this podcast. So I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. This is another episode of AgriTurf Agenda. <laughs>